Welcome to the Malaysia in Deluge series of podcasts about Malaysia's 15th general elections, or GE15. I'm Kian Wong, and with my colleagues at MASA, the Malaysia and Singapore Studies Affiliate of Australia's Asian Studies Association, we're discussing the themes, tropes and tendencies of GE15 with all sorts of experts in politics, the economy, the polls, the media, religion and society. In this episode, James Chin sketches out the often overlooked and misunderstood politics of East Malaysia's Sabah and Sarawak, which in today's fractious Malaysian politics is coveted by all winning federal governments as a so-called Borneo block of parliamentary votes. James is Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania, a leading commentator on Malaysian politics and the leading scholar on contemporary Sabah and Sarawak. James is also a MASA committee member. With alliances and loyalties fluidly contested across a huge Borneo landmass bigger than Peninsula Malaya, and the two Borneo states' burgeoning grievances over the original 1963 promise of Malaysia still thwarted by the peninsula's politics, this 15th general elections is another opportunity for Sabah and Sarawak to press their advantage as deciders of who ultimately becomes the next Prime Minister and which coalition forms the federal government. So James, is Malaysia ready for a rising East Malaysia? And do the numbers add up? So I think the first starting point to understand about Sabah and Sarawak is that uh, collectively they control about 25% of the seats in parliament. So that's about 57 seats. So in other words, whoever forms the federal government uh, will require uh, at least some support from the Sarawak side or the Sabah side. So they can't run away from it. Uh, some people actually call this the kingmaker position. I won't go that far, but uh, it's quite definite that uh, whoever forms the federal government uh, will have elements of uh, Sabah representation and Sarawak representation. So prior to this election, uh, it is quite clear that key players from Sabah and Sarawak is actually the ruling coalition in Sarawak. Uh, they're called the GPS. Uh, essentially, the GPS consists of parties that were in the Sarawak Barisan National prior to the fall of the Barisan National 2018. So when the Barisan National lost power in 2018, the Sarawak Barisan National parties got together and rebranded themselves as GPS. So GPS has been very, very successful in consolidating the support in Sarawak. So they had the general elections uh, December last year where they won uh, 92% of all the seats in Sarawak. So basically all the governments formed uh, since 2020 uh, the East Malaysian component uh, largely consists of our GPS. And I think they've been very successful. Uh, the story for Sabah is slightly different. Uh, Sabah has always had a turbulent political history, and uh, this will be reflected in this coming uh, GE15 as well. Uh, so basically, in terms of Sabah, there's always been a lot more parties. Uh, some people call it the alphabet soup approach. Uh, there's plenty of acronyms. But I think uh, one way of looking at Sabah is that uh, there was intense competition uh, between three uh, big political groups. Uh, the first one, of course, is what we might call the non-Muslim Bumitra group. Uh, sometimes they are called the KDMR, Kedazan uh, Dusun Murut. The other group is, of course, the Muslim Bumitra group. And of course, the third group consists of the others, with the largest block in the others being the Chinese uh, of Sabah. Uh, so Sabah for the last few years has been uh, quite divided, again, among these three groups. Uh, part of the reasons why politics in Sabah is a lot messier compared to Sarawak uh, is that Sabah politics is driven personalities, but perhaps more importantly, 
Uh, the major parties from Peninsula Malaysia are part of the ruling coalition in Sabah. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, GPS is, is all Sarawak-based party, while in Sabah, you have uh, West Malaysian parties such as AMNO uh, who are on the ground here. And in fact, AMNO is one of the uh, key players in the Sabah government. Yes, I, I suppose that's the interesting differentiator between Sarawak and Sabah and something that everyone tends to be guided towards if they're familiar with general you know, Malaysian and especially Malaya politics, that Sabah has this feature of UMNO and it seems to highlight, I guess, the racialist nature of the politics there. But it's actually not so different to Sarawak, is it, aside from the UMNO brand? Well, in terms of Sarawak, you can, in a way, also divide up the Sarawak population among the non-Muslim Bumutra, and that consists uh, essentially of the Dayak groupings, the different Dayak groupings such as the Bidayu, uh, the Iba and the Onagulu. And of course, the Muslim Bumutra in groups in Sarawak are normally referred to as the Malay or Melanau. And of course, the others, uh, essentially like Sabah, uh, consist mainly of the uh, Chinese seats. But the difference in Sarawak is that almost all the political parties or all the major political parties in Sarawak uh, do not really uh, apply a racial criteria for joining. So in other words, all the parties in Sarawak uh, made it very clear they're multiracial. Uh, they're quite happy to accept uh, anybody from any race. So for example, in the ruling party, uh, PBB, uh, they will admit you as long as you're Boomer Butra. Uh, they don't really care whether you're Christian or any other religion. Uh, SUPP, uh, Sarawak's oldest political party, has always had quite a strong indigenous wing. And the other two parties in Sarawak, uh, PRS and PDP, in the ruling coalition, the interesting thing is that PDP's president, even though the party is largely diet-based, is actually led by ethnic Chinese. So one of the arguments uh, you can put forward is that Sarawak politics is much, much more multiracial uh, compared to politics in the peninsula. Yes, I think that's a key feature that people look from the peninsula about Sabah and Sarawak. But how is it then the case with Sabah, which uh, previously, especially in the immediate aftermath of the so-called Sheraton move of February 2020, when the Pakatan Harapan government collapsed, there was this play by the Sabah leader Shafi Abdal and his warisan to try and capture perhaps the imagination of some sort of Malaysia-wide progressive vote. And they put out well-received videos about this. But right now, Shafi Abdal's warisan seems to be much diminished and is really just one of several trying to get this important uh, East Malaysia block of votes. Um, that's probably uh, not the right way of looking at it. Probably the right way of looking at it is that uh, Warisan was part of the larger uh, Pakatan Harapan framework in 2018 when they defeated the uh, uh, Barisan National, uh, the first regime change in Malaysia. Mm. So at that time, uh, Warisan allied themselves with Pakatan Harapan. They did not join Pakatan Harapan uh, formally. So they were in the uh, state government or they formed the state government in Sabah from uh, 2018 until the fall of the government in 2020. 
Now, in this election, uh, it is quite interesting. Uh, Warisan has come up with two innovations. One is that they've decided to pursue a thing called Warisan going alone approach. In other words, they have not allied themselves with any other party or any other coalition. Uh, so under the approach, their game plan is really to introduce a multi-racial politics, not only in Sabah, but throughout the country. So for the very first time in Malaysia's history, a party from East Malaysia is actually uh, standing in Peninsular Malaysia. So in terms of Warisan, they've actually put up, you know, uh, at least two dozen candidates in Peninsula Malaysia. So they're hoping, you know, to export this brand of multi-racial politics to the peninsula. Uh, because the reading among the Warisan leadership is that politics in Peninsula Malaysia is getting uh, really toxic. Uh, there's too much uh, religious element there. There's too much racial element there. And that perhaps it's time for the people of the peninsula to learn about uh, Warisan. Now, the second component of the Warisan go-in approach, of course, is that Warisan is hoping that uh, they will win a large block of uh, uh, MPs. Uh, so the thinking is that, you know, out of this more than 50 uh, candidates they're putting up, if they can easily win, say, between 15 to 25 MPs, uh, that will immediately make them a very, very important block in the Malaysian parliament. As your listeners know, the Malaysian parliament consists of 222 seats. So if you can get over the threshold, say 15 or 20, you really a 10% block in the Malaysian parliament. Now, combined with GPS from Sarawak, which is expected to win more than 26, you're talking about 20% uh, of, the, of the block in the Malaysian parliament. So these two collectively will be known as the Borneo block. You don't think they, as a Borneo block, would actually reach up to, as some speculate, 30% or a third of the parliament? But I think it's really important to note that this is the very first time uh, where the parties are seriously talking about Borneo block. And I think this is extremely important because they have seen how successful uh, GP, GPS uh, was in getting concessions uh, from the federal government. Now, by way of a background, one of the things that has happened to Sabah and Sarawak uh, since 2008 is that there was this issue of the Malaysia Agreement 63. Now, I'm sure a lot of your listeners do know uh, something about MA63, but I think uh, people often uh, forget the depth of, uh, of, of feelings towards MA63. So if you go to Sabah and Sarawak today, uh, in every election since 2008, you find that all the parties, it doesn't really matter whether you're in the government or the opposition, all of them claims to be a champion of MA63. So essentially, uh, the bottom line is that the people of Sabah and Sarawak are trying to get uh, maximum autonomy from Putrajaya. And a lot of them do believe that uh, the way forward is really this thing called the Borneo block. Because without this block, uh, they, are, they are not in a political position to negotiate uh, maximum uh, autonomy from uh, Putrajaya. But more importantly, uh, force Putrajaya to give a lot more resources to Sabah and Sarawak as these two states are really undeveloped. So Sabah has generally been uh, Malaysia's poorest state for the last 20 years. Definitely. And, and I suppose for us to just very quickly uh, go through what those grievances and uh, historical memory and in some ways mythology that drives this so-called MA63 campaign. I mean, we're referring to, in a way here, the formation of Malaysia in 1963, which uh, brought in Sabah and Sarawak and with, with that also a whole bunch of special rights and privileges which had not existed 
previously. Is that right? Yes. So essentially, in terms of the MSCC3, uh, the historical grievances can basically be sort of uh, summarized into three key components. Uh, the first key component was actually uh, how the Federation of Malaysia was put together. So as you probably know, uh, back in 1961, uh, Tunku Abdul Rahman made an interesting announcement, suddenly at a press club in Singapore, uh, talking about uh, building a completely uh, new federation. At that time, Malaya was already uh, independent from 57. So Tunku Abdul Rahman suggested that uh, this is during the Cold War era, don't forget that. So he suggested that uh, maybe the way to move forward was to lump all the British territories in Southeast Asia together. So we were talking about Malaya, uh, Singapore at that time under Lee Kuan Yew, uh, Brunei, the oil-producing uh, state on Borneo, and of course, uh, British North Borneo, which became Sabah, and the state of Sarawak, which uh, had a really interesting history in the sense that it was ruled by a private British uh, family called the Brooks. So the initial idea was to lump all these states together into a new thing called the Federation of Malaysia. Uh, the interesting thing in terms of historical grievances <clears throat> from the people of Sabah and Sarawak is that they made the argument that uh, uh, the people of Sabah and Sarawak were actually not properly consulted. Now, being ruled directly by the British, uh, uh, the argument is that uh, the British said yes to the proposal on their behalf. And there are some historical documents that suggest that, that uh, the British colonial service actually went all out uh, to make sure that the people say yes uh, to this proposal. So that is the sort of the historical argument. The second argument in terms of the MS-63, of course, is that since uh, Sabah and Surat uh, joined or, or helped form the Federation in 63, uh, they've always been marginalized, uh, politically marginalized in the Malaysian system, especially uh, after 1969, after racial rise and the establishment of the Barisan National. Uh, it was always understood that uh, the Barisan National uh, never took the people of Sabah and Surat seriously. Uh, they were marginalized uh, in terms of, of politics and access to resources. So in those days, uh, the common joke about Sabah and Surat was that they were regarded as uh, Barisan National's fixed deposit. So, you know, uh, that simply means that it doesn't matter in every election, it doesn't matter what Barisan does, uh, Barisan will absolutely get a big majority in Sabah and Sarawak and hold the entire Barisan national government up. And because of that, uh, basically, the, the politics in Pakistan, Malaysia, sort of neglected Sabah and Sarawak for a very long time. Now, this has real-term consequences leading to my third point. Because they were politically marginalized, this means they were not getting the share of the resources. So when I'm talking about getting the share of the resources, I'm not talking about in terms of the budget per se. What I'm talking about is essentially oil and gas resources. Sabah and Sarawak are major oil and gas producers. Uh, if you look at Sarawak alone, right, that is simply uh, the biggest uh, land size uh, state in Malaysia. If you combine with Sabah, uh, they're actually geographically bigger than Peninsula Malaysia. But when you look at oil and gas resources, right, essentially when Petronas was set up, uh, Petronas would not have survived without the oil and gas uh, from Sarawak. So the argument goes that, you know, the bulk of these resources was taken to Kuala Lumpur. It was built, uh, it was, sorry, it was taken to Kuala Lumpur and that money was built to develop Peninsula Malaysia. So for example, Petronas Tower, North-South Highway, uh, all these huge projects were essentially funded by Petronas and yet Sabah and Sarawak received nothing. Most people do not realize uh, that people are very angry in Sabah and Sarawak 
And the best example of that is that the North-South Highway linking uh, uh, Peninsula Malaysia from Southern Thailand all the way to Singapore was built in the 1980s. While today, there is no highway uh, in Sarawak that links Sarawak to Sabah. Yes, and of course, this long-standing type of small micro-nationalist uh, sentiment or grievance also part of the resistance to what it considers what a type of Malayan racialist religious politics as well? Uh, there's always that element as well. So basically what happened is that after the establishment of the Barisan National Assembly 3, uh, increasingly politics in, in Peninsula Malaysia, especially after Mahathir took over in 1981, uh, there was a lot more emphasis on what we might call identity policies today. So there was a lot uh, a lot of emphasis on Ketuana Melayu, Malay supremacy, and perhaps in the last 10 to 15 years, more emphasis on Ketuanan Islam. So combined together, you have the Malay Islamic supremacy thing. So politics became much more toxic in Peninsula Malaysia. But because Sabah and Sarawak, as I mentioned, were politically marginalized, and they were part of the wider Barisan National Network, uh, there was a very strong attempt to export this model of Ketuanan Melayu Islam uh, towards Sabah and Sarawak. And that has created a lot of resentment on the ground uh, because Sabah and Sarawak, as you know, right, the indigenous people were the majority and the indigenous people in Sabah and Sarawak uh, really have nothing in common with the Malay population of Islam Malaysia. But more importantly, you know, uh, they were not Muslims. And how does that sort of work then? Because obviously we are now down to, you know, where at federal elections we end up talking a lot about the type of transactional politics that this rights issue, you know, rights campaigns tend to imply. When at G15, because at these federal elections, because so much uncertainty, no one is clearly polling strong enough to get an absolute majority, it would appear. That's partly why the so-called Borneo bloc will play an outsized, even more important role in determining government? Yes, well, before we go any further on the Borneo bloc, as I mentioned earlier, this Borneo bloc will only come to fruition if uh, one single political bloc in Sabah, uh, in this case, Warisan, uh, can win something like fifth, at least 15 to 25 seats. Uh, without that bloc in Sabah, you can't join up with Sarawak because it's quite clear that in Sarawak, you have a solid bloc of more than 20 uh, parliaments, uh, parliamentary seats by GPS. So if there's no single party in Sabah that can win a big block, the Borneo block will not exist. <laughs> I think we have to, to, to start from that. But in terms of how this thing is being played out, I think one very simple way of looking at it is that uh, in terms of uh, opposition politics in both Sabah and Sarawak, uh, because of this strong push for state nationalism, uh, you find that the opposition uh, parties in both states are divided into basically two big blocks. One is what we might call the local-based opposition party. So, for example, in Sabah, this is basically the GRS, uh, Sabah's version of GPS of all the local political parties. Then you have the national uh, opposition parties, essentially consists of uh, Pakistan Harapan, uh, DAP, Amana, PKR, and of course, you've got people like PAS also running around in Sabah and Sarawak. Uh, but the point is, uh, because of this strong sense of state nationalism, uh, the opposition can't come together. So the state... Uh, local opposition do not want to work with the so-called state uh, opposition that is part of the wider uh, national opposition. 
So, you know, the starting point is that this uh, strong sense of state nationalism has already divided the party up in Sabah and Sarawak. And of course, it would matter quite a lot that, yes, especially in Sabah, the likes of Warisan actually managed to land up to 10% of the federal seats. Yes, but it has. Uh, we're still waiting to see uh, how well they'll do. But the bottom line is 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 that uh, Warisan is actually standing in every single seat in Sabah, including uh, Labuan, yes. and they are the the biggest number of candidates. And in fact, uh, Pakatan Harapan is only standing in twenty three. So even though Pakatan Harapan claims to 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 be the largest opposition, they're actually uh, not standing all the seats. So you know it's getting interesting in Sabah, and also. Uh, what was interesting on nomination day, and this is something that was totally unexpected, even I did not expect the thing, was that there was actually a riot in, in, in Sabah mm. when one of the political local political parties, uh, when the leader of that political party, uh, Peter Anthony, when the nomination paper was rejected, he actually led to a riot. So what does this tell us? This tells us that uh, people take these parliamentary elections in Sabah very, very serious. Uh, you know, you, you you don't go rioting if you don't if you don't take these things seriously. So p- part of the highlights of nomination day in Sabah, uh, where and you've been there, at Kota Kinabalu, of course, was the unusual or unexpected riot that happened in Ternom, which is of course quite famous for its coffee. It, it appears that there is a great number of grievances that are still quite unresolved. Uh, yes. So basically in Sabah now, uh, the way to look at these upcoming elections is that basically you've got uh, basically four big blocks. Uh, as I mentioned very early on, the first big block is of course a party warisan standing on their own. They're putting up uh, candidates in every constituency. So that's quite interesting. The second big block is of course the so-called uh, West Malaysia uh, opposition, and that consists basically of Pakatan Harapan. They're putting up 23 seats. Now, in terms of local party, the two big blocks is, of course, the GRS, the State Nationalist uh, Coalition, uh, consisting of local political parties, and that is led by the incumbent Chief Minister Hajiji. Plus, interestingly enough, the second big block in this uh, Sabah state government is actually AMNO, AMNO uh, and the rest of the Barisan. But in this election, uh, it looks like uh, AMNO has decided to dump its uh, partners in the peninsula, the MACAMIC. Uh, they were completely left out. So all the Barisan national seats were actually given basically to AMNO. But there are some also very interesting uh, things that happened on nomination day. So for example, uh, prior to nomination day, a lot of my Sabahan's friends were saying that there might be a big possibility that uh, Musa Aman, the former strongman of Sabah politics and chief minister, was, might be thinking of making a comeback. Uh, it did not happen, but what caught everyone by surprise was that his son, who is supposed to be his political heir, who was the assistant state finance minister, he was dropped as a candidate. So in this election, it's quite interesting that there's nobody uh, from the Musa Aman uh, family that, that will be standing. So that, I think, is interesting. Now, in terms of the other interesting uh, seats, uh, the other one that everyone is watching closely is Tawau, uh, because uh, the PKR uh, leader in Sabah, Krishna Liu, is trying to defend her seat. Uh, what happened was just prior to this election, uh, there was another uh, PKR uh, person in, in Tawau uh, who is actually uh, trying to sabotage her even before uh, nomination day. So uh, a lot of people are telling me that if Krishna Liu lose in, in Tawal, it is because of internal sabotage. So that is quite interesting because normally you don't expect that uh, among the opposition. 
Uh, the other interesting seed is, of course, um, uh, Tuaran seed. Uh, the reason why Tuaran is interesting is because uh, you can argue that it is basically a, a, a battle uh, between really high-profile people. So there's three very, very high-profile candidates in, in Tuaran. Uh, first is Wilfred uh, Madias Tangau, who is the uh, retiring president of the APCO party. Uh, but the other two candidates standing against him are really, really also high-profile. Uh, a state minister called Jonathan, uh, who used to be a journalist, plus a former beauty queen, Joanna Rampas, who's very, very well known in Sabah. Uh, what is interesting about this is that Jonathan uh, fought with Joanna uh, just uh, in the recent 2020 uh, Sabah election. So uh, in that seat, it'll be highly, highly competitive, but I'm sort of uh, putting my money on Jonathan to, to, to win that seat. The other interesting thing that happened on nomination day was that Ronald Kandi, uh, one of the uh, strong uh, PBBM uh, people in Sabah, uh, decided to go against the SIP uh, distribution between uh, GRS and AMNO, and he decided to stand as the only Basatu candidate. And his opponent will be the official uh, Barisan National Stroke GRS candidate, somebody from AMNO. So it looks like uh, Sabah politics has really uh, gone back to personality base. Uh, if you're not happy, if you feel that you've got uh, real support, uh, party labels doesn't really uh, doesn't really matter. A lot of my friends tell me that he he will actually win the seat, even though he's going against uh, Amno. So I think uh, that is also very interesting. And finally, uh, there's one more seat that I should really mention, and that is the seat of Penampang, which is uh, regarded as the Kedazan Heartland seat. Uh, this seat is really, really interesting coming up because he got two, uh, what they call second generation Kedazan Dusung leaders uh, fighting out among themselves. Uh, one is Iwan Benedict, representing APCO. He's the incoming APCO president. And uh, he's very young in his 40s. And he's fighting against uh, Daryl Lacking, uh, the second uh, uh, top leader in uh, Warisan, who's supposed to represent the uh, Kedazan Dusun component of Warisan. So what is interesting about, about this battle is, is that we are talking about uh, two very second generation uh, Kedazan Dusun leaders who are going up against each other. And obviously, one has to lose. Now, the talk in uh, Sabah, of course, is that this is a really important battle because if Ewan Benedict from APCO wins uh, against Daryl Lakin, he is very likely uh, to be named as the Pakatan Harapan Chief Minister designate at the next Sabah election, uh, state election, which is due in two years' time. So the stakes are really, really high. And, and yet Daryl Lakin was, of course, um, uh, Pakatan Harapan Cabinet Minister. Until the coup. Uh, yes, he was the former Miti minister in the Pakatan Harapan government in uh, 2018 to 2020. So he is rightly uh, uh, very well known in Sabah. Not only is he the number two person in Warisan, but he's regarded as a giant killer because when he took over the Penampang uh, 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 seat, he actually defeated a sitting uh, cabinet minister, uh, another Kadazan Dusun Tan Sri Bernard Dompok, who was also a federal minister at that time. So his reputation is as somebody who was a giant killer. And really, as you say, heralding uh, a newer, younger generation of politicians as well. No, in all of this, I suppose, just circling back to the issue of a federal outlook of politics, how much of these federal issues, aside from the ME63-derived grievances, actually will matter on the ground on these you know, pitch battles, which are very personality 
focused as well? Well, it depends which seat you're talking about. But by and large, it's always in the background, the federal issues. So, for example, uh, in the seats where the DAP and PKR are standing, uh, all their opposition will, of course, be arguing that you should not vote for PKR or DAP uh, because these are Malayan parties. Their leaders are controlled uh, by Malayans and they really can't fight for Sabah rights. Uh, but on the other hand, personalities also play a very key role in Sabah politics. So it's really a, a cocktail mix of all these issues. It depends on which seat you're talking about. But generally speaking, uh, seats in the rural interiors and the seats in more undeveloped areas, personality counts more than the overall issue. But you really can't run away from this issue about uh, state versus federal, MA63 grievances. Uh, in all the Charamas, uh, I can guarantee you sooner or later, every candidate will have to address this issue. How are they going to ensure that uh, Sabah get more autonomy? There's just no running around from that. What would you expect in terms of Sarawak's fate at these general elections? What do we think we will get? So as I mentioned earlier, uh, I don't expect any major political upheaval in Sarawak. The last election shows very clearly that uh, GPS dominates the process, winning 92% of the seats uh, in, in, in the State Assembly. So I, I don't really expect uh, there's going to be any real competition in Sarawak other than the urban Chinese seats, where really it's only the DAP and the PSB that can put up oppositions in Sarawak. So the talk in Sarawak is that uh, GPS will increase the number of parliamentary seats. Currently, they hold 19. They'll probably end up with more than 20. Uh, DAP will reduce their representation and maybe PSB at the most will pick up one seat. So Sarawak is really non-combative. Uh, so that's the reason why I came to Sabah. So overall, is Sabah and Sarawak going to be able to play that so-called kingmaker role? So in terms of uh, talk about Sabah and Sarawak playing the kingmaker role, I think we really need to look at the numbers on election night. So for me, what is what is really interesting is that among the political class or the political elites in both Sabah and Sarawak, they're really hoping uh, for the Malayan political class to be divided. So, for example, the biggest bloc in Malaya, uh, they're hoping that they will not get uh, the magic figure of 112 or 115. They're hoping that at most, uh, those guys in the peninsula will only get around 105 to 1110. Now, the reason I say that is because this means that the political class in Malaya will be held hostage uh, by Sabah and Sarawak because you need the MPs uh, from the Borneo states to form government. So that is really what they're looking for. Because it's very obvious that if the political class or one dominant party in Malaya, if they were to image, we say 120 seats, uh, Sabah and Sarawak are no longer to no longer able to play that sort of leverage position. Uh, they will still join the federal government, but they can't really threaten the fall of the federal government. That was Professor James Chin of the University of Tasmania. You've been listening to a series of podcasts on Malaysia's GE15, produced by Kian Wong in association with MASA, the Malaysia and Singapore Society affiliate of the Asian Studies Association of Australia.